Thanks for joining us on today's edition of Pipeline Things. You can see I'm here by myself introing the podcast because Christopher had to take Amanda to dinner or something like that. Anyway, this week we follow up with... Keep my wife's name out your mouth. You're lucky she likes you. You went totally Will Smith on me. Anyway, we follow up after last week's episode with Alex McKenzie Johnson. We talk about Drift and IMU. It's a great episode. Join us. I'm sorry? Welcome to today's episode of Pipeline Things. I am your host, Thing 20, otherwise known as Rhett Dotson, and my co-host, again, not lesser in prominence, but in stature, Thing 21, Mr. Christopher DeLeon. Thing 20 fun, let's be clear. Okay, that's Thing whatever. Thing 20 fun. Uh, so, hey man, it's another day, another show, excited to be with you, so it could be a good topic for today, but before we do that, man, what's up with you? You know, I just, uh, the office has been a lot more quiet lately. Um, why do you think that is? Are we um, going there? Maybe because somebody decided they want to take vacation and uh, leave the rest of us here to fend for ourselves. You know, everybody needs a recharge moment, Christopher. Everybody needs to step away and recharge. I'm pretty sure everybody would say you're more like the Energizer Bunny than, <laughs> than meeting. You to know, step I'm away sure in between the Energizer Bunny commercials when he was walking around beating that drum, they probably swapped his batteries out. No matter what Energizer <laughs> probably wants us to know. Oh, but, How are you? How was your vacation? Man, vacation was good. I took the kids uh, camping at Somerville, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, what I am grateful about is that uh, when we left, I checked the weather, and it yeah. was clear all four days. Uh, but on day three, when we were there, I checked the weather again, and uh, there was a severe thunderstorm warning scheduled for that night, at which point I was like, you know, we're in a tent, and I don't know if we want to be here during a severe thunderstorm. And so I made the call with my brother-in-law to, hey, I, th I think we need to call this show early, and we need to pack up. And uh, I'd say it was a good thing that we did because a storm cell developed out of nowhere and we found ourselves tearing down in the middle of a rainstorm, which is absolute chaos when you have four small kids. So I'm in a oh, tent. Oh, so you, you took the kids. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, boy. It's, it's me. And we have literally uh, a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 7-year-old. And I'm with the 7-year-old in the tent tearing it down and she's in tears as it's crying and it's thundering then it starts hailing while we're tearing yeah. down the back of the yeah. truck is getting soaked oh it was oh the only thing i'm glad for yeah. is that that was only a, a harbinger of things to come because as oh, we were boy. leaving on the way home we were driving through massive hailstorms, like 40 mile per hour yeah. winds yeah and uh, i don't know what we'd have done well if we'd been there you know it's a good takeaway what is that it's a great, sounds like great memories. Your kids are going to remember this forever. <laughs> we will have good memories. So what was your composure? How did you act? <laughs> how, will they, how will they forever remember this? Dad was blank. Dad, Dad was what? Uh, <laughs> Dad contained himself uh, to some extent. It was, it was good, Chris. It was, it was good. I was pretty stressed out. What they remembered is that they said we, we got home in chaos. But uh, yeah, so that's my week. You know, again, so check the weather before you camp and be prepared. Things change. Yeah. Uh, that's what I'll say, especially if you're going to go camping for four days. Uh, but man, let, let, let's kick it in. Let, let, let's go straight into today. So today's topic is going to mm. follow up closely from the last weeks, which we did, which we had the dirt merchant, Alex McKenzie Johnson one. Again, before you listen to this episode, I would remind you or ask you, go listen to what the dirt merchant had to say. So why don't you recap it for us, Chris? Pick sure. up real quick. Yeah. Um, 
One, we just wanted to thank Alex again for, for sharing some time with us and sharing his knowledge. Um, geohazards is, uh, is one of those things where um, it seems like it just, it just happens, right? And so a couple of takeaways from that episodes were uh, don't waff it up right uh weather related and outside forces you know so if you do have an incident you know honor the show a little bit and show up on site and say what the waff you know and uh so that that was a big take caption that on linkedin for us <laughs> yeah what the waff <laughs> uh the second takeaway is it's uh, lidar can be really helpful mm. right so lidar is a technology that's that's available um it also uh enables an operator to to have an appreciation for what's going on around the pipeline um, and also that it can it can um, kind of short do a shortcut to all the complexities of like soil interactions. It's a way to kind of maybe not bypass it entirely, but get an appreciation for what you need to know about what's going on in the pipeline. And then third was uh, IMU data, uh, which can be onboarded to an ILI system, can be really really helpful. So yeah, yeah so was, that's that's going to be really where we want to go with today's episode, which is the focus is I mean straight up. Let's talk IMU. That's what today's episode is going to be about. Before we get into that, we're saying, again, three letters, since this is a show for everyone, including your mom, which I had. Your mom is watching now? So that's good point. Yeah. So so congratulations to mom. Hi, mom, if you're watching this one. She is a YouTube follower. All right. So she oh. actually watches us. So cheers, mom. Love you. Uh, thanks for taking the kids for spring break. I'm sure they enjoyed it. Yeah. So for those of you who are listening to us on the podcast, if you do prefer to listen via YouTube, we actually are on a YouTube channel as well where you can find us. But again, going back to that, <laughs> IMU, Inertial Measurement Unit. Yes. Uh, those are a relatively new addition by relatively new since, like, I think, turn of the century addition to ILI tools. And as I understand it, you have some knowledge. Uh, before we get into the use of IMU, yeah. let's talk about what happened before yeah. IMU, right? So yeah. IMU, uh, the origins were principally around line location services and specifically where is a defect on the pipeline how can i get to it more directly and more accurately yeah um but before i'm you how did operators go about doing that so uh there's a lot of common lingo right so odo is one which is basically the odometer which is associated with your ili tool right so when you Mm -hmm. look at the back normally it doesn't have to go on the back of the tool we can go anywhere on the tool but normally what you see is you'll see like these like spoke like or gear like looking wheels on the back of your tool right and that's basically an odometer right where basically they're relating the rotation of the wheel to some distance from point A to point B, right? right? Uh, other common language is chainage, mm. right? So so where does chainage come from and why do we say that, right? So without getting too much into it, right, there was a mathematician Guter around the early 1600s and he basically had a chain, right? And this chain um, was 66 feet long and so from there we do chainage and that then is also referred to as a survey chain, Yep. right? So we can imagine back in the day that's how they found stuff. So when I got into pipelines in, you know, 2008 timeframe, uh, that's that was a common language, right? It was like, hey, you know, we'd run an ILI tool, uh, we'd identify features that we wanted to go after, and then we would have it chained in. And I never really thought too much about it, but effectively, what you're doing, right, is you go to alignment sheets or some kind of survey notes, right, and you find two points on the pipeline of interest, and then you chain it in, right? So they literally measure from each of those units or those points of reference, and they they overlay them. And normally, With where chains. you want to be literal chains. People understand. Do we have we have literal you chains know, or ropes that are 66 you know, foot long? I I, I, w- I would well they, they were they ended up being a lot longer. I would say I don't think they did that. 
to be honest with you. At some point, they probably did, but mm. I guess in our era or even the generation before us, I bet they were using like range finders from like Cabela's or Bass Pro, right? Where or at least the tape. I saw them out on. I've seen them out on the pipeline in, in multiple times where they actually have the long tape. You know, it's yeah. like a couple hundred feet long. Well, maybe. Well, the idea, but the idea again <laughs> is it's they, they go from two reference points and they measure across, and normally you, your target area is in the overlap, right? Yep. Coming from downstream, coming from upstream, and you can imagine that's that's in pretty inaccurate. I mean, yep. imagine you you, you got to dig, and then you got to find a girth weld, and then you got to start looking for things that kind of help you understand what you're looking for, right? So um, that can be time consuming and inefficient. You find one girth weld, then you find a seam weld, then you yeah. find the next girth weld, then you're trying to align. Next the thing seam you know, you've got an 80 scale. foot bell hole open. If right? you're lucky, I mean, that's not a bell hole. Let's be clear. Okay, yeah, yeah by then you've got an 80 fine. foot ditch, yeah. And, yeah. and honestly, probably closer to 120 to 200 foot ditch by yeah. the time you get three, four joints open. And uh, that's expensive, right? I mean, the, the, a lot of the cost for an operator in opening up a ditch is the time of being on site, digging and opening up the ditch. Which brings us to why IMU was actually integrated onto yeah. the tools, right? So around early, uh, let's say late 1990s timeframe, certainly before yours, is when they began integrating these onto the tools. And it was yeah. primarily to prevent 180 to 200 foot long excavations. We wanted to see if we could get down to six, 12, 20 foot excavations, which has um, significant cost savings, right? Yeah. So uh, as I understand it, and you do too, there are two types of IMU units, right? Do you yeah. know the two types? Well, the way we refer to them is our, our MEMS and FOG. MEMS right. and FOG. Do you MIMS know what MEMS fog. stands for? Um, MEMS is probably... Uh, I do. I'll yeah, actually put ahead. it on your show notes. It's great. Oh. It, it micro mechanical <laughs> electrical system, right? <laughs> so uh, it's basically uh, MEMS systems and, and fiber optics work off of two different principles. So yep. the MEMS system actually uses Coriolis effect and things like that in the earth in order to measure uh, accelerations on a very small scale. Fiber optics uh, actually uses fiber optics to measure, yep. right? It, it's more accurate. So uh, most operators probably don't know this, right? But not every ILI system is equipped with the same type of gyro unit, right? So let, let's take a, a step back before we get there. Um, yeah. Our objective is to find a feature in the ditch, right? And yep. so we equip a tool with an IMU. Uh, I think what operators see on the back end is coordinates in the feature list. And believe it or not, I, I know it's kind of crazy. Okay. There's still a lot of people that think we actually record GPS positions positions from inside yeah. of the pipe. Well, so that, that's a good we trigger. We don't. <laughs> that, that's a good trigger. So Surprise. Yeah, so where would you say this came from, right? How did we get to the point of we have this technology of IMU? Um, any information you can share about that? Yeah, so it's, it's actually pretty interesting, right? So if you think about it, for all the engineers out there, yeah. or non-engineers yeah. out there, I'm going to break it down real simple for you. IMU units record angular and lateral accelerations. Acceleration is how much your velocity or speed is changing in one direction. Yeah. So let's take it down to your car, right? Yeah. I'm gonna speak in terms of integration differentiation, the most technical <laughs> we're ever going to get on this episode. But if I tell everybody that you're traveling 50 miles per hour in your car, yep. constant speed, and you drove for an hour, how yep. far did you go? You'd yep. say 50 miles, I was yep. doing 50 miles. Right? You just did. You just did integration in your head, whether you realize yep. it or not. Everybody, even Miss Producer, shaking her head. She just did integration <laughs> in her head. She's like, I didn't even like calculus, right? Yeah. Um, so take that and go a little bit further. Basically, if, if you know what the acceleration is, if I tell you, okay, well, you're changing velocity this much per second 
how fast are you going after 10 seconds, you could calculate the velocity. You yep. could then take that velocity profile and calculate how far you traveled. That's, that's rudimentary integration. In a nutshell, that's exactly what the tools themselves are doing. They're recording accelerations at a very, 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 very fine time scale. And then we integrate them in order to get position at the end of the day. The challenge is, this is where the, the hook comes in. You, when you double integrate that way, you end up with noise and other things that influence drift. So basically, if you double integrate just off of the sensor data from an IMU, it's mm -hmm. not going to give you the correct location of your pipeline. So we have to introduce another thing to basically a process known as dead reckoning. So at some point, the tool has to know that it crossed a fixed space and time. Yeah. And then we say, hey, you didn't actually, after we double integrate, you didn't end up way over there. So it's like the equivalent. Let's, let's start. Okay. Let's say we ran a pipeline from the center of Houston. Got it. If we double integrated the data, it might say the pipeline terminated in Conroe. Okay. Which is like northeast side of Houston. When Got in it. reality, the pipeline actually terminated in Cyprus, which is like the northwest side of Houston. Got it. Right. So what we have to do is tell the data, you didn't end in Conroe. You actually ended in Cyprus. So what do we call that? We call those AGMs and a process of dead reckoning. Got it. And so what we do is we basically then correct the data by saying, hey, your endpoint's not over here. It's actually over here. And we re-navigate the data so that it takes into account the fact that it knows where it ended. So AGM stand for what? Uh, above ground markers. Got it. Right. And, and so we got two big things that we're taking out of here, right? We're taking out drift. Yep. Right? So drift is, is a process by which there's some kind of bias or inaccuracy in IMU data, which is system-based, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's going to have it. It's difficult to get away from it. And the way we mitigate that is through above-ground markers. Yep. What can you say about above-ground markers? So uh, above-ground markers, the, the air increases the further your above-ground markers get away from each other. Okay. Right? And, and as a function of the sensors, right? So again, this is about as technical as we're going to get with people, but there's two different gyro systems I mentioned to you, MIMS yep. and fiber optics. MIMS are more sensitive to drift, particularly around temperature issues in pipelines and other things. So you actually have to have a closer AGM spacing for a MIMS gyro than you do for a fiber optic or a fog gyro. Got it. Right? So a good example of that is, is that's why, so if you're an operator and you're used to doing AGM spacings about every mile, if you're going to use a MIM system, should you reconsider that? Yes, right? So it's, it's okay. a good point, right? So if you maybe switch vendors or you're running a different tool type, uh, that one per mile spacing may not give you the same level of accuracy. So this is where it gets real important, Chris, that you actually look at the specification for the ILI yep. tool that you're running. So a lot of times when we talked about corrosion, we talked about these other things, you mentioned the POP diagram. The yep. POP diagram breaks up corrosion into different areas. Yep. But when we talk about a gyros, now we're actually talking about a specification that's based on something required from the operator, namely the spacing of their AGMs, right? Yeah. So, uh, and that what that looks like is the further your AGMs, the less accurate your GPS coordinates that they give to you at the end of the day are. Got right? it. So, so let's let, let's summarize that a little bit. I mean, let's make let, let's let's grab onto it, right? So, yep. what do operators take away from this? What they basically say is there's drift, and there's AGMs. So if we're going to engage a, a service provider in providing us with IMU data or XYZ data or GPS data, whatever we want to call it, we need to look at the specification to understand if we need to change our AGMs, the space between our AGMs. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. And it also depends. A few other things can influence that. If you have a lot of start stops with your tool, it can kind of wreck 
your AGM spacing, or if your tool moves too slow, and that's where you get into challenges with your GPS coordinates. But those are those are pretty unique so, intra-run conditions. So so let's think about this, right? So if 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 this if this ILI tool through through IMU is providing a mapping capability, yep. it makes me think of accuracy both you know um, in a two D and a three D perspective, right? So one is topographically, is this where I want to dig? But second, what about depth? Does it give us any mm. information related to how deep the pipeline is? So uh, the challenge with, with depth, right, is again, and so you're bringing up another important <laughs> thing, right, is that at the AGM location, yeah. the operator has to provide this, the geospatial location of that AGM to your vendor, and they have yeah. to provide the pipeline depth. Mm. If that pipeline depth at the AGM is off, then your reported vertical location of the pipeline will be off as well. Right, so as well as, again, we ran into this a lot at our former uh, employer, Rosen, where you'd run into challenges with the depth that was provided by a vendor maybe was not actually top of pipe, mm. or it was actually pipe center line, which can make a big difference in a large diameter pipeline on what your actual you know, depth of cover is. Uh, so yeah, those are all important things. But I feel like right now, what's going on is we are getting lost in the weeds of geospatial accuracy for IMU. And mm. I, I think where the industry is at is everybody thinks, hey, I ran IMU, I found out the geospatial accuracy of my pipeline, I know where it is, I don't need to do it again. And this is a battle I've been fighting. Geospatial accuracy, your XYZ mm -hmm. coordinates that you get for doing digs were the primary use of IMU, but they are by far not the most valuable part of the IMU data yeah. set. I think another point, though, also is it's, um, you know, we were talking a little bit about origins, right? We talked a little bit about chainage mm -hmm. and how the value of IMU, and if we weren't clear about it, you know, one of the big reasons why operators would 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 engage uh, ILI service provider to include IMU was really to make it more efficient to identify where growth worlds were so they can get in and get out. Yep. Right? This process of surveying in where you needed to dig became really time-consuming. It became a burden on operations. And so we have this technology that um, I would, again, um, every ILI service provider kind of has their own costing model, but we could say it's usually around 10% of the cost of the inspection from a, from a, from a the ILI, from an cost. ILI perspective, yes. roughly, right? And that doesn't cover everybody, but it, it's a ballpark example, you know, 10 to 15%. Mm -hmm. And so when you would, when you would look at those costs compared to what it would take to do 80 anomaly digs or yeah. 20 anomaly digs and the time to expose the line, yep. the value of IME was just there. And so as time has passed, I would say, is it fair to say that IMU has proven to potentially have other advantages, like, like understanding how deep a pipeline is, like if it's at a road crossing or if you're going to do an mm -hmm. HDD or to verify center lines. And what we found, Rhett, can you speak to a little bit about what are some of the challenges of wanting to use ILI data that wasn't really either prepared to be used that way or we're wanting more out of it, and maybe now we need to maybe change the way we collect that data a little bit. Maybe talk to us about that a little bit. I think, I think what you're getting to is, for me, IMU is what I like to say is the forgotten technology. Mm. If you are out there as an operator and you only view IMU as I can get my geospatial accuracies and get my digs down from 180 feet to 12 feet, yeah. you are potentially, I'm going to say, probably missing, I think, one of the largest benefits IMU can provide which is the ability to manage WAF, weather and outside forces, the ability <laughs> to, to do up. bending strain, 
Yeah. And the and really the ability to determine whether or not external forces are acting on your pipeline. That is getting more from the IMU data than original data. And what I'm talking about is this actually happened, I'd say, around mid-2000s. I mean, the, the first GeoPig survey and those papers were put out late 1998. Okay. But it didn't really catch on to around mid-2000s. And I'd say turn of 2010 or so yeah. is really when bending strain assessments and the use of that data beyond geospatial became much, uh, I'd say, much more prevalent yeah. and more recognized. But even today, there's a lot of operators that think, I ran IMU once. Yeah. I know where the location of my pipeline is. I know my girth welds are. You know what? I'm going to save that 10% on the run. And that is a big mistake. And before we dive into that, I actually want to take a break right here. You got it. Because we are going to jump into bending strain. Hopefully, you are still with us because I'm going to set the hook for really how to get the most out of your IMU data. My name is Chris Alexander and I'm president and founder of ADV Integrity and we are the proud sponsors of the Pipeline Things podcast led by Rhett Dotson and Christopher DeLeon. In that podcast they're going to be talking about things like integrity management, uh, pretty much anything related to pipelines including regulations, technology, and uh, anything that you would need to know. They're also going to be talking about current events. Um, for those of you that don't know anything about ADV Integrity, we're a consulting company. We do uh, full-scale testing. I'm actually here in the lab and really high-end engineering to serve the pipeline industry. And we would love to hear from you. I'm really excited about being sponsors of the Pipeline Things podcast. Awesome. So we're back. Uh, we're talking about IMU. So on the, on the first part, you know, we talked about how the technology works, what dead reckoning is and all that fun stuff. So um, basically, I think it's fair to say that IMU technology is available on pretty much most platforms for ILI. Would you say that's true? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's I don't know if there's a provider or a scenario out there where you can't get it. Everything from your combo tools to single technology tools. I mean, even now there's some cleaning pig solutions that have IMU integrated onto them as well. So, I mean, it's 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 definitely available out there. And, and we also then summarize that there's... Uh, Predominantly two major types of, of IMU technologies, MEMS and FOGS. Yep. And um, we also talked a little bit about AGMs and the role of AGMs, right? And yep. So you did say, let, let's circle back on one topic. You said, we're not measuring GPS. Just bring that home for us. When you do an IMU, you're not measuring GPS. Close right. that up for us. Uh, so again, what you're doing is you're measuring angular and lateral accelerations in the pipe. And you're double integrating those fancy words, fancy maths to get to the point of where the pipeline is located. And then you're using AGMs, fixed points in space to correct the data set. That's how you make a And therefore provide short. GPS locations. And then provide GPS locations as an end result. Awesome. So that's good. So um, you said uh, the IMU technology, it almost feels like it's that, that, that forgotten technology. And, and if we tie this back to our geohazards or, or WAF threat, yep. Talk to us specifically about how is it that IMU data is used for managing weather-related and out the threat of weather-related and outside force events? Yep. So this is where I start to get actually really excited and passionate, right? Because for yep. me, IMU, again, is like the forgotten technology, right? Operators ran it once, and it's like, run it once and forget. I don't need it again, right? Yeah. We're going camping. I checked the weather once. What I'll say is, thank God I checked it again. And I think... Again, my, my, what I want operators to hear out of this segment I'm about to go into is you need to be running IMU. And the reasons why yeah. is that geospatial location is one component. But actually what IMU can do really well is it can actually tell you the local point-to-point -point location along your pipeline okay. and break that down into curvature. 
So if you okay. think about it, you're thinking about like geospatially, where is my pipeline located on planet Earth? Is it here or is it here? But what bending strain also has the ability to do is tell you, hey, between these two locations, how straight is your pipeline and how much has it been bent? So why does that matter? Why does it matter? Yeah, why does so, it matter? Again, great question, Chris. When we talk about uh, pipelines, there are a few reasons why we bend them. A lot yeah. of times we bend them intentionally. We manufacture cold or filled bends because we need to take a PI and change the orientation of the pipeline. Yeah. Those are really clear, obvious locations where we bend. And we typically bend to fairly tight radii of curvature. You could only, in most cases, achieve with like a hydraulic means. Okay. okay. Second way that we bend. Or by horse with wrinkles. Horse and pipes trees. with wrinkles in the 1930s absolutely <laughs> happen. You can email me if you want those images. We, we like wrinkles, right? Or are they buckles? Are they wrinkles or are they buckles? Oh, that's not for this episode. We're going to save that for the caliper episode before I get into So that's ripples, another show. Wrinkle, we have another, another show. show. Wrinkle yes. bins are another show. Absolutely another okay. show. Got it. So uh, again, when you go back to, to bending strain, the difference between uh, why we bend pipe, the, the yes. other way that we bend pipe is we're a process known as roping, right? Okay. And so uh, basically you dig a ditch and if the elastic curvature of the pipe is okay to fit in that ditch. They just kind of force the profile to that ditch. They so you said really elastic. When you say elastic, it makes me think that you know rubber I can stretch something and it comes back. The rubber band man. That yeah. You so when up. you say when you say elastic, it, just talk about that just a little. Why cool. does that matter? So for all of our people out there that are not metallurgists and not mechanical or structural engineers, steel. Mm -hmm. uh, it actually behaves in an elastic manner just like a rubber band. So if you pull it so far, mm -hmm. it will go right back to its original undeformed shape. Got it. That's elastic. If you pull it too far, it's kind of like taffy. It becomes plastically deformed, and it doesn't go back to its original shape. So it's a lot like a paper clip. If you bend a paper clip but it's barely a little bit, it'll go back to that shape. You bend it too much, then you've got a new shape for the paper clip. Steel Got pipelines it. are the exact same way. Got right? it. So when we talk about elastically placing it in a pipeline, yeah. if we took that pipeline back out of the ditch and yeah. laid it, it would go back to its straight shape. Which is good. Which is good. Right. Okay. So if we want to plastically deform the pipe, we need to do it in a controlled manner at field bends, right? And hydraulic means. But what happens a lot of time is Mother Nature, and when Earth moves <laughs> and decides to take its pipelines with us, yeah. unfortunately Mother Nature doesn't care whether you're your elastic or plastic. It doesn't, state. it's just gonna pull the pipeline with it. So what happens is that the pipeline It's kinda like your kids at camping. When the hail's coming, whether they want to go or not, you're grabbing and saying, let's go. <laughs> Look, poor Peyton sat there with her arms folded in the tent crying, and I'm trying to undo the mattresses. It was, it was rough, Chris. It was you rough. were the outside force because weather-related weather, weather -related events know. were coming. Yeah, the outside force trying to get our butts up and moving to get out of the campsite. Um, right. so, so back to the ditch. Back to the ditch, right? So that, that pipeline, again, is plastically deformed, and you're looking for locations where it was unintentionally plastically deformed. Got it. And in the IMU data set, you can do that by looking at the curvature of the pipeline in the trajectory. And by looking at the signals, like I say, field bends have a very distinct signal in the data. And a and trained when you say analyst. signal, just help us appreciate this a little bit. When you say a signal in the data, are we talking about a squiggly line, a color plot? Just very simply, so it's different what, what does than, that mean? It's a good question, right? So, if, so people out there that are used to looking at MFL data, where they're used to seeing data across multiple sens sensors that's rendered, rendered as either individual lines or color maps. Yeah. It's not like that. We're basically rendering single lines that tell us what the trajectory of the pipeline is across that location. How would you describe that? Is that out of straightness? It's out of straightness. Okay, right. got it. And so it's, trajectory this is, is out of straightness. This is hard to visualize okay. without actually looking at a visual. Okay. Um, what I'm going to say is imagine that you took a straight line 
and you stretched it over the pipeline, we could then determine how much the pipeline had deviated from that straight line. Got it. So that's trajectory. Yes. All right. So then what else are we looking at? Then the next thing we're going to look at is how much we quantify that change in trajectory as curvature and then get bending strain from it. So bending strain comes from curvature yep. change. All right. Got now it. everybody track with me. Bending strain and curvature, kind of think about how hard you would turn in a curve, right? Like mm -hmm. if you're driving in a car, you can usually tell when you turn into your driveway. Yeah. Because that feels like, wow, that was a really sharp change. Yeah. That's like a, different. Like a U-turn in your car. Yes. Right? That's different. You slow than down, you... you're going to make a turn. Exactly. Whereas, that's... like, on the overpass, maybe it's a wider turn and it's a lot easier. Exactly. And if you're driving like me, I want to be on the inside lane because yep. I got centrifugal forces trying to get me There out. you go. So the difference is, right, the uh, turning into your driveway is kind of like a field bend. Got and it. we can see it in the data that way as though that's a hard turn. That's a field bend. Yeah. And then the same way, driving like a real soft curve around the interstate, we can see that as well. And we're like, ah, that's where the pipeline might have been roped in. Got that's it. distinctly different than all of a sudden you get a harsh, uncontrolled turn. And you're like, it's neither turning into your driveway, nor is it that soft thing on the interstate. And an analyst will say, wow, that's where the pipeline was unintentionally bent. Something is going on there. And so right. IMU helps us identify those locations that weren't intentional. Along the entire span of the pipeline segment that you inspected. And it does it by, by describing the pipeline, if, am I getting this right, via out of straightness Yep. and changes in curvature. Absolutely. Got it. And, and so um, I think we're starting to see what you're saying. So uh, normally, how is that presented? Because I, I would almost say that an operator, if they're looking at IMU data, they're used to seeing coordinates, right? So now help us appreciate, if you're going to use IMU for an assessment, yep. let, let's go back to inter integrity terminology, I believe we may or may not have the threat of WAF. Yep. And we're, we have IMU data. Mm -hmm. Am I going to get a list of GPS coordinates that I got to integrate? Talk to me about what nope. IMU data looks so like. So when you get strain. a bending strain assessment, you're going to get an assessment that says, hey, we identified this area that has abnormal curvature or curvature that's outside of roping and not quite field bends. We'll also identify the field bends for you too and say, hey, these areas were intentionally built. But this big section right here, yeah. that was not intentionally built. And then we'll quantify the percentage of that strain Okay. And so that gives an operator an understanding of how severe it might be. So, for instance, if I tell you, hey, you have this 300-foot-long segment, and it was a 0.4% strain, that's pretty significant. So, so tie, tie that back to me, right? So I'm, I'm going to go back to the ditch. You said there's uh, bins that are good, yep. which are elastic, and then there's bins that are plastic, which may be good or may not be good. And now you just said strain. Yep. So how does strain help us understand if it's good or bad? So strain uh, helps you understand whether it's good or bad because it tells you the, the magnitude of how much the pipe was intentionally or unintentionally built, bent. So like Got in it. field bins, they're typically bent to one, two, six percent, pretty okay. high strains. And you have to be done very controlled. Okay. So when we talk about a uncontrolled bending, we're talking about usually only order of 0.2 to 0.5, maybe 1% strain. And in an uncontrolled manner, that's pretty significant on a pipeline. You can get buckling. You can get some other pretty nasty things that happen. Your girth welds can split apart. It's pretty common. Those are the two types of things that will typically happen if a pipeline is bent in an uncontrolled manner. And again, so what we go through is we identify all these areas, right? Now, they're not all associated with geohazards. That's the other important thing to okay. know, right? So when you get these bending strain areas, some of them, you look and you're like, there's a road crossing and it's cased and I've got a wall thickness change. Mm. That suddenly starts to make sense why you would have 
Oh, yeah. You, I mean, so, if you've been on a site, shades. right, you know, that was a pretty hard fit up there. They were having trouble aligning the sections of the pipe underneath that casing, threading it through, wall thickness change. You wait till the supervisor leaves the site, you grab it with a backhoe, you force it into position. So, <clears throat> so I, I want to take this back to the integrity engineer that's wanting to bring in uh, a WAF assessment because they're going to have IMU data on their, on their ILI system and they're going to be looking for um, a deliverable. Summarize for me what that deliverable looks like. So what that deliverable looks like is, uh, you know, again, since we like Excel spreadsheets, yeah. operators are always going to get a list of the bending strain areas that will tell them the length of it and the, the, the peak bending strain. Okay. Right? Uh, that is the least valuable part of a bending strain assessment. Behind oh. that, they'll actually get images of all of the plots that show you what the deformation and what the strains look like throughout the area. That's where the real gold in a bending strain assessment is because the operator can couple that with other data sets, such as maybe LIDAR or such as maybe satellite imagery mm. to start to determine what's going on. So you look at an yeah. area and you say, wow, the strains are kind of localized. And oh, wow, that's where I have a crossing. I can see I've got a, 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 you know, a case crossing there. I see I've got a roadway that was built. That's probably stable in most locations. That's distinctly different than, man, I've got this 350-foot area. Oh, it happens to be on the side of a hill. I go, I start looking at the satellite imagery. Maybe you can actually see scarps in the surface where you start to see cracks. You start to say, there's probably something else going on in my pipeline there, right? So yeah. bending that seems, strain. That seems pretty advanced. It is a little so, bit, but so it can be integrated very well with those other data sets. So normally the deliverable will be there will be a spreadsheet component, and there's going to be a, a graphical visual component. Absolutely. So normally there's two deliverables. Yep. If when we think of an ILI system and an integrity assessment, we also often like to think of things like, you know, when do I start to care, right? So is there is there like a minimum reporting threshold or a threshold of concern that we can we can offer yep. the audience as a rule of thumb? So most operators will report at around 0.125% strain. Okay. Uh, so 0.125, again, and this is going to get technical, uh, is still within the elastic region of a pipeline. And elastic is still okay because it, it can come back to, okay, to, to original right. shape. Got it. Um, the reason that that limit is chosen is it's where we can pretty confidently discriminate noise uh, in the system mm -hmm. from actual signals that we're interested that in. We need to interpret. That's, that's the significance, right? You can you can use lower levels, but you start to pick up a lot of background noise in, in areas where you're going to identify features that are not of interest to the operator. So typically 0.125%. So that's a reporting threshold. Yep. 0.125% yep. strain. And that came from curvature. Got it. Yep. What, what, when do I need to start carrying? So uh, Is it an I, RPR? Is it a burst pressure yeah, ratio? Yeah, no, it's not an RPR. Okay. I, I, I like to give operators some, some stakes in the sand, but those stakes <laughs> in the sand really kind of depend on your system, right? So again, this is, uh, you know, whether or not I left the campsite, it depends on whether or not I was in a tent or whether or not I'm in an RV. If I'm in an RV, we pack up and we're good. You're good. In a tent, you get the heck out of the site because you got <laughs> hail and everything else coming, right? So I'm going to break this down. So I like to tell operators uh, between 0.125 and 0.2 is like, hey, be aware of it. You need to look for it. Between 0.2 and 0.3% strain, you start to get a little more concern, right? You need to take some extra steps. You need to check maybe what your strain limits are in the pipeline. Yeah. 0.3 to 0.4 is like getting to your yellow light, right? It's starting okay. to flash a little bit. Yeah. We start to get to above 0.5. For me, that's a red light, right? Because uh, your lower bound strain thresholds for most pipelines are around 0.5%. And if you're getting level levels above that, you yeah. need to have good justification. Most pipelines... Uh, can't 
without due diligence take above 0.5 percent so that's right. your, that's kind of like you like you said that's kind of like a, a blinking red light yep. kind of right it doesn't say stop yep but 0.5 percent is like a blink i like that an, uh, that analogy it's a blinking red light that says caution you're gonna have do to do some pause. extra work if you're maybe. in a tent you might need to pack up really quick if you're in an rv maybe you need to get everybody inside the rv so, and batten down the hatches however but it back to our analogy of call somebody or get help if you get ab above 0.5 or around 0.5% strain, that's when you want to start yeah. asking for help, pump the brakes and find out what's going on. Yeah. Uh, t talk us through that a little bit. So, so what, what, would, what would fail? If, if I have 0.5% strain, is that the pipe? Is it a, what is it? So your, your failure modes come in one of two flavors. Uh, yeah. One is on the compression side, you can get buckling and then the buckling can eventually give way to cracks in the pipeline depending okay. on the ductility of your materials and depending on how things go, right? Got this it. is a problem for most of your large diameter thin wall gas pipelines, right? So the gas operators that exist with D over T's above 50, 60, approaching 100, yeah. uh, that buckling limit usually becomes a real problem for them. Uh, on the other side, on your tensile side, your concern is your girth welds, particularly in some of our older pipelines. Um, the girth weld strain capacities, I mean, they, they vary significantly, Chris. I mean, I've seen girth welds fail with a little 0.3% strain. Yeah. And then on the other side, you can tie the pipeline into a pretzel and get well above 2% and it's fine. So I, um, I really, really like where this is going. And I feel like there's a lot of stuff we still need to drill into, right? So if I'm, if, if I'm an integrity engineer or listener and I'm, I'm hearing this show, I understand that IMU's available, that mm -hmm. IMU gives me trajectory and curvature and um, we can use that to now manage the threat of weather-related outside forces, right? We, we've also then kind of described a little about what that deliverable looks like and thresholds, but I want to get more into the meat, but I, we don't have time for that today. So guess what we're going to have to do? Are you going to leave a cliffhanger? We're, we're leaving a cliffhanger. Oh, you have to come back for... I wasn't prepared for a cliffhanger. That's okay. Well, we're going to... episode gonna, two of Bending Strain? Is we're going to do episode two of Bending Strain, and we're also going to touch on maybe a significant event and some lessons learned from there. So then really... And also pipeline movement. What we left the operators with from this yeah. is this is sort of like an introduction to IMU. Be aware of your units. Be aware of your... Uh, whether it's MEMS or it's FOG, and be aware of the impact on your AGMs. And then be aware that there's a whole other data set you can get beyond that, which is bending strain. Yes. And you want to dive into bending strain on the next bending episode. Bending strain, for sure. Let's, let's get into the weeds of, of how we're going to do that. All so. right. Well, Mom, we're going to close it out today. <laughs> and for everybody that's out there, thanks for joining us. We will be back two weeks from now and look forward to seeing you then. We'll close out bending strain, where you should get that data and what you should do with it. I am your host, Thing20. Thanks for joining me today. And my co-host, Thing21. We'll see you Thing in two 20 weeks. Fun. We'll see you guys.